0: Let's go in prayer this morning. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, Oh, Lord, we come before You. Lord, we are broken. We are in need of You. Lord, we are desperate. For even though You have saved us, Lord, we struggle in our sin and we just can't seem to break loose of it. Lord, why do we still sin? We are redeemed in Christ, but yet we still struggle. Oh, Lord, help us to see by today's passage that the Holy Spirit is filling us. The Holy Spirit is working with us in present, and it is growing us, and we are coming alongside that work and responsibility to serve one another, to put sin to death, and to grow in Jesus Christ. Oh, Holy Spirit, help us to see and understand your word today and apply it to our lives, that we would act upon what we know to be true, And what we say that we believe, that it would be honoring to the Lord, that we would be the light of Christ in Lakeville and to all the nations. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, Lazarus had been dead for four days before Jesus brought him back from the dead. What an amazing miracle and sign that this attested that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Jesus was the Messiah who had been hoped for, planned for, and prayed for. Lazarus was physically alive, but eventually he would face physical death again. Despite the amazing grace of being raised from the dead, Lazarus was still bound head to toe in grave clothes, and he stinketh much. But Jesus was not done with Lazarus, and he's not done with us. Jesus makes sure that Lazarus was unbound, that he was set free from his bindings, and as one scholar says... This is but an illustration for us to understand that we, being born again, are spiritually alive in Christ, but we often still act as if we are bound head to foot, don't we? That we are still somehow in our old sinful self. Well, new believers are set free from their bindings of sin. But sin is still present in our lives. This is this continuing battle with sin that we call sanctification. It's the already in the already but not yet. It's the reality of our Christian life here until we see Jesus face to face. We have been justified and we have been freed from being prisoners to sin. And we are alive in Christ. However, it is through living in Christ that we will eventually shed more and more of our grave clothes day by day over time. Last week, we looked at the steps of sanctification in verses 1 through 10 under three headings. Look in your outline. First, knowing the biblical facts. Second, believing the biblical facts. And today, acting upon the biblical facts. Acting upon the biblical facts. Last week, we saw that we just could not continue to live in sin. And if we did live in sin... It's not like God's grace would somehow be more amazing, so it should justify it. No. If we are born again, it is the work of God alone. He has saved us. He has given us a new heart in Jesus. Our new heart longs to work in the field owned by God. Remember that? We work in the field owned by God with our eyes behind the plow, looking to Christ, even though we are tempted by Satan in the other field to distract us and pull us away. Thankfully, we are in God's jurisdiction, not Satan's anymore. We are called to be dead to sin and alive in Christ. We see today in verses 11 through 14 as we continue, that Paul's now going to provide clear commands as to how we are to respond because of our death and resurrection in Jesus. Now remember the old adage from last week. It's helpful in our relationship. We know what we are to do, and we are to actually do it. It's this, become what you are become what you are. It is not sufficient just to profess and to believe. We should also be characterized by a heart of obedience to God. We should be characterized by a heart of obedience to God. Sanctification, then, is growing out of our old nature, Adam, into our new nature, christ sanctification is a process and it's a process by the holy spirit that uses sin and suffering and trials in our life to turn our eyes off of ourselves to christ this means we need to continue to seek forgiveness in confessing our sins and placing our faith in the sanctifying work of christ We must, number one, recognize our sin. Two, we must have a contrite heart. James 4, 6 reminds us that God only offers the grace of sanctification to the humble. So what does it mean to be alive in Christ? One scholar puts it this way, quotes, Being dead to sin and alive in Christ means that one concretely obeys God in everyday existence. One concretely obeys God in everyday existence. How are you doing with that? We're going to see four commands in verses 11 through 13. We're also going to see that Paul is going to have a contrast for us. A contrast is being mastered by sin or being mastered by grace. Now watch for them as we read it together. Romans 6, we're going to start in verse 11 and read through 14. Romans 6, starting in verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore... Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting your members, uh, the members of your body, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but you are under grace. You are under grace. Well, did you see those contrasts? We can align these contrasts under two headings. Sin being our master or Christ being our master. One scholar notes that when we are freed from something, then we are freed to something else. That is, if sin is our master... Then we are freed from righteousness and we are freed to the fruit of shame. We are freed from righteousness to the fruit of shame. In the same way, if Christ is our master, we are freed from unrighteousness to the fruit of holy living. In verses 12 through 14, Paul uses these contrasts to further explain the command of verse 11. When sin is our master, sin reigns in our mortal body, resulting in us obeying our lusts. However, when Christ is our master, we present ourselves to God as those alive from the dead. Similarly, when sin is our master, we present our body parts as instruments of unrighteousness. But when Christ is our master, we present our body as righteous instruments to God. All this concludes with verse 14, where we can see the contrast between sin being master over us when we are under the law and Christ being master over us when we are under grace. So Paul is showing us that being dead to sin and alive in Christ is key Not only for knowledge and believing, but also for us to act upon our godly living. Today we're going to look at this passage under the following headings in your outline Remember who you are in Christ, reconsider what you have been saved from and saved to, realign to be alive in Christ and then rejoice. Rejoice that He's going to keep you to the end. Point one in your outline. Remember. Remember that we have been delivered from sin's domain and we are alive to God. Verse 11. Look at it. It starts out with, even so... Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. These two key words, even so, tie us back to all the biblical facts that we've seen in the first 10 verses. We know we are to believe that we are dead to sin and alive in Christ. If we're baptized into His death, and we are buried with Him and crucified with Him, then we are in Christ. We know this, and we believe this. Paul has just stated that believers are united in Christ with His death. And through Him, our penalty for our sins has been paid. We have risen with Jesus Christ in resurrection, and we now walk in newness of life. We will never die again to sin. Never. In other words, as a Christian, we must know, we must believe, and now act upon we are not who we used to be. We all know this to be true. If you've been saved here today, you know you are not the same person you were before God saved you. One scholar puts it this way, quotes, He must understand that he is not a remodeled sinner, but a remade saint. He must understand that despite his present conflict with sin, he is no longer under sin's tyranny, and he will never be ever again. The true understanding of his identity is essential. It's all about our identity as Christians. In Colossians 3.10, Paul reminds the Colossian believers that they have to put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. In other words, our death and our resurrection in Christ have transformed our position. We are alive in Christ, we are saved, and we now are being sanctified as we grow in Christ-likeness day by day. This does not, this does not mean that we are immune to sinning. Get that out of your head. Paul does not tell us that sin is dead in us, but rather, that as a believer, we are to count ourselves dead to sin. For sin to be reigning as a habit in the believer is quite out of character. Sin should not be a habit. So, we are to remember that we have been delivered from sin's domain, and we are reckoned alive to God. We are to serve God in righteousness as we serve others. The first step in the resurrection life, our life, is to decide to live a way that is obedient to God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Living by faith means seeing things as Christ sees them and then acting upon those biblical facts. James tells us that faith without deeds is dead. Faith without deeds is dead. This leads to verse 12 where we are commanded to act by reconsidering that we are allowing sin to reign in our moral body which leads to lusting. The command we see in verse 12 basically says, stop! Stop allowing sin to reign unopposed in your mortal selves. Let's look at it together. Verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. In other words, we must not let sin go on reigning unchallenged in our lives. We must challenge it. We must actively engage with the Holy Spirit to help us fight sin's power. Godly living is necessary. It's not optional. If we are still living in the grave clothes that Lazarus was freed from, then we're not living the supreme life that we have been raised to. Don't deny your freedom by allowing sin to rule over you. The body itself Is not the cause of sin. We've studied this in James chapter 1. Lust and our evil desires collude our personhood, they drag our body into sin. And if sin is allowed to become a habit, it will eventually lead to eternal death. In the here and now, we must live our salvation with active struggle. Active struggle against the power and the presence of sin in our lives. Now, many of us struggle with this basic relationship to sin. We act as if we've really never been changed, like we've not been reborn into Christ. Our old nature seems way too obvious. In our Christian life, seems like a battle. It's a battle between two opposite and equal natures. We have our sin nature, and then we have our Christ nature. What we must remember is that we are reborn. God does not add a Christ-like nature to our already sin nature. No. Rather, it's a complete transformation. Our sin nature has been put to death. It no longer exists. Christ has paid for it once and for all. We have been transformed. We have been reborn into a Christ-like nature. But one where sin is still present, and it does have limited power to taunt us and even drag us into bodily sin if we let it. But, rest assured, sin no longer has dominion in our earthly lives. Some call it sin, the old Adam, the old man, the old woman, the old nature, the reminders or the remainders of indwelling sin or simply the flesh. Call it what you want, but know that it is real and it is active. We must stand against it. We must reconsider that our new birth in Christ is not an experience. It is not experiential. And it's not even fully visible. But we know We know that we are dead to sin and we are alive in Christ Jesus. Why? Because God's word says so. This is God's infallible truth. This is the only truth. This is what we must go to. This is what we must focus on. God's word says it so. So it is. We place the burden of truth on God's infallible word. Philippians 1, 6 States, for I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. We like that truth, don't we? We must maintain confidence in the midst of our temptations. We must know that Satan and sin have been defeated. Regardless of sin's presence in our lives and the limited power of sin in our lives, God has dealt with sin once and for all. God is greater. God will allow sin for His glory and for our good. Having reconsidered now the biblical facts of verse 12 that we can no longer let sin reign in our mortal bodies and we cannot allow ourselves to obey its lusts, we now turn to realigning ourselves by presenting our bodies as instruments of righteousness. In verse 13, point three, realign. We're going to see a contrast here between sin being our master and Christ being our master. This is in regards to what we do with our personhood. Look at it with me in verse 13. Verse 13. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now, we see an obvious contrast here in verse 13, don't we? One commentator identifies the key word here as yield, yield. The idea here is that we are to yield from using our body, our our whole person, to sin. Instead, we are to be deliberate, deliberate in using our personhood to serve God, Since sin is no longer master over us, it can and must be resisted. Sin has no power to control us unless we choose to obey its lusts. In 1 Peter 2, we see this call. His call is to wage war against sin in our personhood, to wage war. He says, I urge you, aliens and strangers, to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. So the moment that you become a new believer, we are to yield to sin and to choose to serve God. God. Remember the illustration from last week from Martin Lloyd Jones about the two fields? Here's the field of Satan and a field of God that's separated by a road. Remember? As we are justified in salvation, we cross over from the field of Satan to the field of God to do his work, to plow his field. We no longer do the work of sin. We are no longer in Satan's field. We are no longer slaves to sin. But he can still influence our lives over here in God's field. Romans eight twenty two through 23 states, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pain of childbirth together until now. And not only this... But also, we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So, we are eagerly waiting for the resurrection of our body in Christ's second coming, so that we will finally be free from both the power and the presence of sin. Amen? Paul addresses this with the Philippian believers. In Philippians 3, he writes, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with God the body of glory. I can't wait. It is obvious, though, that sin can reign in our bodies. But it does not have to. It does not have to reign because we have died to sin and we are alive in Christ Jesus. We have to realign. We have to turn, repent, and realign from serving sin to serving God. So we are to stop placing the members of our body at the disposal of sin as tools for unrighteousness. Yes, tools for unrighteousness. The term tools here can be rendered and often is as weapons. So our tools are weapons. This has a military or a kingly sense. Our bodies are to be in service as believers to King Jesus. Instead of warring against God in our personhood, we are to realign by employing those weapons, the instruments of our body, in service to fight for God. We are going to be fighting sin, and we are going to embrace righteousness within our personhood. Paul, having implored us to action in being alive in Christ, now provides a declaration of assurance that sin will never again be our master because of the grace of Jesus Christ. We see that in point four, our final point today. We are to rejoice. We are to rejoice that we are no longer under the law but we are under grace, the grace of Jesus Christ. So Paul ends this passage in verse 14. Look at it with me. Verse 14. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. This is an exhortation It's an exhortation that we can rejoice over. Paul is making a promise to all believers that sin will not rule over them. Yes, it's present. Yes, it has power, but it will not rule over them. We have a responsibility to seriously obey the commands, to know, to believe, and act upon that which we know to be true, that we are dead to sin and alive in Christ. It is our duty, our responsibility that cannot be ignored. However, we must not fail to see that obedience is a gift from God. It's God's grace. And second, there's a promise that He, God, will keep us to the end. It's His faithfulness to us that keeps us to the end. So the question becomes, why does Paul connect rejoicing to this idea of law and grace in this verse? Well, Tom Schreiner helps us to see that the phrase is under law and under grace must be understood in a salvation historical sense. They refer to two different eras of God's plan of redemption. You've guessed it. The law here is the Mosaic law. And grace is the new age that begins with the death and resurrection and the establishment of the church. So the logic in verse 14 is if a person is still claiming to be under the law, then sin will continue to be their master. But if a person is under grace, sin will not be their master, but grace will. Galatians 3.10 states that those who are under the law, in essence, are under a curse. Therefore, those under the law need to be redeemed They need to be redeemed from their slavery to sin and their slavery to death by Jesus Christ. In contrast, Galatians 5.18 states that those who are led by the Holy Spirit as believers are no longer under the law. So in verse 14 here, Paul simply connects being freed from sin with being freed from the Mosaic law. Now, the Mosaic era was an age in which sin dominated. The promises to the nation of Israel were unfulfilled. Since Israel did not keep the law, they were continuing to be subject to the law. In essence, Israel could not keep the law as long as they were under the law. They were under the law, they could not keep it. Now, the believers in the age of grace are enabled by the Holy Spirit and God's grace to keep the moral norms, the laws of Christ. And we do this, again, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the key is that man, in his own accord, cannot keep the moral norms of God. Whether it be in the Old Testament or the New Testament, we cannot do it. Paul is pointing out that law and grace simply do not go together. This is why we saw the contrast in this passage between law and grace. We are not to be mastered by sin, but we are to be mastered by Christ. We are not to be under law, but we are to be under grace. So, if the purpose of the Mosaic Law was not to save, and if the purpose of the Mosaic Law was not simply to point out that man could not save himself by keeping the laws, he could not earn righteousness, what was the overall purpose of the Mosaic Law? Thank you for asking. Romans 3.19 notes that the law was given... Not as a way for righteousness, but in order that every mouth might be stopped and that all people would be held accountable to God. Romans 3.20, we see that law gives knowledge of sin. In Romans 5.20, law makes offenses abound. Romans 4.15, law works for wrath. Romans 3.20, no one is justified by the law. Romans 7.5, people's sinful passions work through the law. And Romans 8.3, the law is weak through the flesh. In 1 Corinthians, we see that the law never justifies people at all. Rather, the law is said to be sin's Strength. The law is sin's strength. Those under the law were in need of redemption. And Jesus Christ came himself to be under that law. God himself comes to be under the law that he instituted in order to save them, to redeem them, those who were under the law. You know, growing up, our family had a pastor behind our house, and we would rent it out to folks who had horses and cows, um, and they'd often put their livestock in there. Despite fixing all the barbed wire fence multiple times, the horses and cows always got out. No, I can see horses jumping over the fence, but the cows? I mean, come on. But of course, we had to go out and chase them down and find them and try to drag them back and entice them. Finally, my dad got the idea of putting up an electric fence. So he added electric fence all the way around and he cranked up the voltage and he warned us boys, do not grab the electric wire. Okay, what was the first thing we wanted to do? If he had never said it, it would have been fine. It's all we could talk about that summer. Who would do it first? How would they do it? It became an idol for us. It was all we could think about. Could we use a stick? That works, by the way. As long as it's not wet. Could we use a weed? Here's a bright one. How about a metal shovel? (laughs) One might even say we worshipped it. We placed such high worth on this electric fence and this rule in our lives that summer that it was our whole memory. Well... The Israelites focused on keeping the restrictions of the Mosaic Law so much that they worshipped the intricate process of keeping the law. They worshipped the process of keeping the law. They worshipped the law. They didn't worship God himself. Being under the law leads to conjuring up all kinds of ways to do the forbidden while justifying our disobedience. Eventually, due to our fallen nature, our primary focus becomes the law. Therefore, we are to rejoice that those who believe in Jesus Christ are no longer under the law, but are under grace The law leads to condemnation and leads to sin. But now we are under the law, and the law leads to being alive in Christ. Now today, we've seen what it means to be alive in Christ. It means acting upon biblical facts that we know and believe. We are to remember, we are to reconsider, we are to realign, and we are to rejoice In the biblical facts of our new personhood in Jesus Christ, we are no longer under the law, but we are under grace. We are no longer alive to sin, but we are alive to God. We are no longer to let sin take us captive, but we are to take sin captive. We are no longer to be weapons for sin but we are to be weapons for righteousness. We are no longer to be mastered by sin, but we are to be mastered by grace. The reality is, if you are a believer here today, Christ is your master. That's who you are. You are freed from unrighteousness, and you are freed To holy living. What a beautiful fruit that is. You are alive to God, so live like it. Remove your grave clothes. Unbind yourself. Let the Holy Spirit and your brothers and sisters help you. And be alive for Christ. You have a brigade, a brigade of Christian soldiers here in this church, in this family, to come with you to fight sin with you. Come, pray, study, join a grace group, be with us, serve with us, so that we can put sin to death and we can take on our new life in Christ's righteousness to give Him glory. If you're not sure that Christ has been crucified for you and for your sins today, come and see one of the pastors or deacons after the service We would love to show you who Jesus Christ is. We would love to show you how you can have the assurance of salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, as we prepare our hearts for communing with the Lord today in the Lord's Supper, let us remember the high price that Jesus paid, that He paid to redeem us under the law. There is nothing that we can do to add or take away from our justification, our salvation. It is solely a gift of the Lord. Remember that we all came to God and come to God empty-handed, saying, God, I'm a sinner. I know what I deserve. Oh, God, change my heart. Give it to me anew. Give me a new name. Clean me. Make me righteous, Lord. I believe in your finished work on the cross, that you died for me and my sins are paid for, and I have your righteousness forever. May that be true of all of God's children, that they would come to the Father through a deep and intimate relationship where they walk daily alive with Jesus Christ.